iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, Apple Store Soho. You guys doing all right tonight? How are we doing tonight? Doing good? Nice. I got a woo. If I get one woo, I can keep going. And the extended clap. I'm a fan of that as well. Wonderful. Good. All right. Well, we got a good vibe going. We have a great event for you guys tonight. Really fun discussion lined up. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tony Goldwyn and this evening's guest moderator, David Schwartz from the Museum of Moving Image. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is David Schwartz. The handsome one is Tony Goldwyn. Hello. And who you might uh, recognize from the movie Ghost as an actor. He's also co-starring in Promises, Promises on Broadway. And he's a terrific director with movies including A Walk on the Moon and The Last Kiss. And, and this uh, is a great piece of work, of conviction. So um, just tell us a bit, a bit about the story uh, because it is based on a true story. And it's one of these stories that is so incredible that... that you wouldn't believe it if a screenwriter made it up. Right, yeah. Uh, uh, Conviction's um, the true story of a woman named Betty Ann Waters who, as you can see, um, her brother was uh, convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. And uh, she, they had been, you know, had a terrible childhood, raised, they were very poor, uneducated. She'd never made it through 10th grade. And they had been through eight foster homes and uh, sort of had raised each other, really. And when she was a young mother, Kenny, who'd been in and out of jail his whole life, uh, he went away for this murder, and she couldn't survive with him in prison. And um, he'd lost all of his appeals and had tried to kill himself, and she made him swear to stay alive, and she would try to get him out. So she went back to school and to college and put herself through law school and became an attorney to try and figure out some way to get him out. And um, uh, it took her 18 and a half years. And in the process, while she was in law school, she discovered there was this thing called DNA. And with the help of uh, Barry Sheck and the Innocence Project, if you know about them, um, she, you know, she managed to miraculously look, you know, find some DNA evidence. And it was just a, you know, a long odyssey to try and uh, to free her brother. Uh, so the movie is really a, a love story between this brother and sister, Hillary Swank and Sam Rockwell. So that's the. Uh, and when did you decide to turn it into a film? And then what was the process like in terms of thinking how you're going to turn it into a dramatically gripping movie instead of something that's sort of like a like a documentary? Yeah. Well, um, I've been working on this film for nine years. I uh, have done many things in the meanwhile, but um, <laughs> the, it was it was nine years ago that uh, Kenny was released from prison, and it was all over the news. And my wife had seen a piece on 60 Minutes about it. And I was just fascinated with the story and moved by it and wanted to understand what this bond was between this brother and sister that she would spend 18 years on an act of faith when he easily could have been guilty. Um, uh, so I um, tracked down Betty Ann and actually uh, tracked down the, the, it turned out there was a producer already securing her rights, Andy Karsh, who's my partner on it. And um, he and I got together and, and he liked my ideas and we teamed up and at that time it was um, you know it was a, at a different studio and, and they hired me to, to direct and develop it and um, I we brought on a screenwriter who had written my first film A Walk on the Moon Pamela Gray and we just started spending a lot of time with Betty Ann and hearing her stories and then figuring out how to make a, a film of it and the, the real trap of a movie like this the difficulty is you think oh well this could so easily be a kind of not sort of a very conventional TV movie type, you know, approach to this subject, which obviously I had no interest in, in doing, and I didn't think it did the material justice or her justice. 
So um, we wanted to tell a very uh, honest, complicated uh, uh, story that, that had a lot of tension in it where you don't know you know, as you watch this movie, you're, you're actually not, you don't know whether Kenny did it or not. You're really, it's, it's very complex, that. And, um, uh, you know, the darker edges of her experience, I thought, are, were much more lifelike. And I guess the only other thing I would say is that when people do heroic things in life, while they're doing them, they seem insane. That, you know, people that do extraordinary things until they've achieved them, we look at them and go, that person's nuts. What are they doing? They're sacrificing all of this. They're obsessive. They're myopic. They're, you know, they're unreasonable people. And uh, so Betty Ann was like that. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I thought that was an interesting aspect to one of the, you know, a way that I wanted to be honest about it as opposed to it being like, oh, look at this wonderful woman and let's watch her. Let's cheer as she, you Yeah, know, and, I mean, not to give too much away, but it, it puts, it, it really, it's, uh, Impacts her marriage. Her husband thinks that she's yeah, it makes nuts. her marriage tough, and she has a hard tough time. You know, she's trying to raise two kids and uh, support herself, and you know, she works at a bar, and um, but she, you know, is just committed and 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 uh, believes in her brother. Let's just talk about these two amazing actors, Hilary Swank. Uh, you know, we know that she had a lot of determination in her life. Uh, you know, the, I think we know about the fact that she lived in a trailer park in Los Angeles. Um, you know, before, in Seattle, actually. Oh, in yeah, Seattle, in uh, before she yep. started her acting career, but she was somebody who's always had this kind of determination. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about uh, how she connected to this role um, and then how she pr prepared for it? I mean, it just seems such a great... It's one of her great roles. Yeah, when I saw Million Dollar Baby, I knew that Hillary was the person for this part, and thankfully she felt the same way. <laughs> um, initially, Hillary had been a little <laughs> hesitant. She loved the script, but had played a, several true-to-life characters and said to me, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready to do another one just yet. And I was in the middle of filming The Last Kiss, and I said, well, let's just wait. I'm busy doing this other movie. And, and I was totally fixated on her. So uh, about a year later, I called her again, and we sat down and talked. And she said, you know, I've realized that I was put on this earth to play certain types of people. And, and, and this is one of them. This is what I was meant to do. And uh, so her preparation process is, is uh, extraordinary. Hillary works just harder than anybody I've ever met. Uh, you know, interestingly, before that meeting, when we sat down to talk about the script, I, uh, you know, normally when you send an actor a script uh, to consider, you know, they'll read it and maybe they'll read it twice, but, you know, you'll sit down and have a preliminary conversation and, and see how it feels. And um, it's, no, it's no big deal, no commitment either way. And uh, with her, we kept trying to schedule a meeting and her agent said, well, she doesn't have enough time to prepare for the meeting, so she, we have to put you off for a couple of weeks. I said, well, how much time does she need to prepare for the meeting? I just want to, we just need to chat, no pressure. He said, no, you don't understand. You've never had a meeting with anyone like you're going to have with Hillary Swank. <laughs> he said, she needs a week to prepare for the meeting with you. And I said, really? He said, yeah, and she's busy, so she wants to clear the week, because when you sit down with her, she will know. What, you know you'll, it's not like you're going to drift and she'll sort of decide. She'll be very clear. So she spent a week preparing to meet me, to have a conversation. And she must have read the script five or six times. And we sat down and we spent four and a half hours together talking about it. And it was an exhaustive meeting about it. And she was so dialed in to what the movie was about to me. And, and for her, it was the same. You know, uh, We were both very moved by this uh, 
theme and this material and the story and this relationship between this brother-sister love story, really, is what it is. Um, and then, uh, you know, sometime later, when you know, we, were, we were putting the money together independently uh, to make this film, and when we got the money together, she said, you know, I, I need two months to prepare before we start shooting. I, I have to have that space. I thought, two months? God, what would I do as an actor if I had two, you know, to spend two months? Uh, and she, she did, though. Every single day, our uh, dialect coach would show up at her house, and they'd work on Betty Ann's dialect, because Betty Ann's from... You know, from Massachusetts, lives in Rhode Island. She has, you know, we wanted the dialects to be very, very real and specific. So she would, you know, every day she, she uh, had a, we, you know, we sent a dialect coach to spend a few hours with Betty Ann and record her telling stories. She had this two and a half hour tape that Hillary memorized. That was how she worked on the dialect. She didn't, before she even started looking at the scenes, she just, she worked on this tape of the real Betty Ann. And they would send me little clips of her to see if I was happy with what was going on. And she memorized the entire two and a half hours in Betty Ann's voice as Betty Ann, and that's sort of how she embodied the character before she even started working on the script. And then every day she'd spend, you know, probably eight hours a day preparing for this before we ever got to rehearsal, before we got even near filming. So she is, um, by the time she showed up, you know, for our first, I, I remember feeling this, the first day of filming, you know, most actors, myself included, when you start filming, you know, I always try and start with a scene that's not too challenging so people can kind of relax into it and get their bearings and sort of find their way into the character. Uh, and, you know, almost every actor is like that. With Hillary, the first shot of the movie, she <laughs> was utterly the woman. It was, it was uncanny. It wasn't that she was doing anything extraordinary or exceptional or exciting. She, she was in a law school classroom, and she had to stand up and ask a question, answer a question of the professor. But when she stood up and opened her mouth to answer this rather routine question, it, it, was almost, it almost took my breath away, because it was utterly Betty Ann. It was the woman. It was, the, it was completely fully realized and relaxed and integrated. And um, I, I t had taken that for granted, because as I say, most actors, you know, you give them a lot of slack to kind of find, to get relaxed into it. And she... She was just there. She's quite extraordinary, Hillary. Yeah, I think we've all seen movies that are set in New England and they have these accents mm -hmm. and they, it sort of takes you out of the movie because it feels a little phony, but this works. Yeah, I mean, she worked really hard and it's a real pet peeve of mine, you know, maybe because I'm an actor, but I, you know, dialects, if dialects are, are not exactly right, they just drive me insane. Um, and especially it's an insult to people that are from that part of the world. And it's also... You know, I believe, like, if you're telling a story, you know, movies need to be real and need to feel authentic in every, every nuance and every detail. And the way someone speaks should be how they would really speak. So, I mean, I always have a dialect coach every day on the set. We're having worked extensively with every actor, so everyone's from the same world. You know, and a lot of people don't do that. Some people are like, well, if you want to do an accent, do it. We'll see, you know. Yeah. I mean, great directors like Clint Eastwood just doesn't interest them. I think on, um, on uh, uh, Mystic River... He just told everyone, yeah, if you want to do an accent, you know, bring it. But uh, that's your problem. That's your job, which I respect. But it's, you know, and if you go watch Mystic River, as great a film as that is, everyone's kind of doing something a little different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Sam Rockwell's performance is so critical to this movie because you do have to believe, uh, it, from the audience standpoint, that he could have committed the murder or, right. or not. Mm -hmm. And so you have to find an actor who has a sort of edge and is kind of dangerous, but... You also have to believe this love relationship. Um, so, how did you you think of him, and and if you could talk about working with him? 
Yeah, well, very much what you just described. Um, Sam was actually, uh, you know, I assume some of you guys are familiar with Sam's amazing body of work, but... Um, like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and Moon, yeah, he started. Moon, last year he was amazing in, and Frost Nixon, and um, so many other great pieces of work. Um, Charlie's Angels, uh, <laughs> uh, Iron Man 2. Um, uh, Sam, when I, when I, years ago, when Pamela, the screenwriter, and I were first meeting with the real Betty Ann and hearing her stories and finding out about her life and finding out about her brother, we realized that the casting of the brother was going to make or break the movie, that if we didn't have the right guy playing Kenny, the movie would not work. We were confident that we could find a great Betty Ann because she's the heroine and she's the central character. And, and, uh, but uh, at that time, I said, you know, we need an actor like Sam Rockwell. And, and Pamela actually wasn't that familiar with his work and said, really? Uh, and it was what you described, that I needed someone who has a kind of madness about them and an unpredictability. That Sammy is an actor who, um, you know, you, you can fall in love with him uh, and he has great charm and humor and yet at the same time he can, you know, he can be a, a little cra crazy and, and you, you can believe that there's a volatility. And this is a guy you have to believe, you have to fall in love with him and understand his sister's love for him uh, but at the same time believe that uh, he, because he has a very violent temper, that he could have actually committed murder. And um, Sam really does, I mean, I, I'm trying not to be biased, I think it's his best work. It's really an yeah. extraordinary performance, what he does in this movie. Um, could, could you talk about your own personal attachment to this material? You know, on one hand, you've got the issue. I mean, this is a film that gets people thinking about the death penalty and about um, this Innocence Project. Um, but there also is this very personal story uh, between the brother and sister. So what, mm -hmm. what was it that attached you to it so deeply? Yeah, that, that's what affected me. You know, when I, I remember when I was a, a small kid, about six or seven, I don't, I don't know, I remember having a, a pretty morbid conversation with myself about what I could survive without in my life. Uh, could I survive the death of my parents? And I decided I probably could. It would be very traumatic and horrible, but I could probably survive that. And I could survive if I lost my home, if we didn't have any money, if I didn't have this or that. And the one thing I felt that I would not survive would be the loss of my brother. I have a brother who's a year and a half older than me, and we were very close as kids. And he was my older brother, and I, I literally thought I would die if he died. Like, I wouldn't make it. And I remembered that being a terrifying feeling. Uh, that I was so dependent upon another human being. And that has always stuck with me uh, in my life. And when I heard, um, as I mentioned earlier, my wife was watching this story on 60 Minutes, and I missed it. And when she told me the story, I thought, yeah, that's a, she, isn't that a great idea for a movie? And I thought, yeah, great idea, sort of like Aaron Brockovich or something, you know, it seems like a, what a triumphant tale and all of that. And, and the issue, the social issue is very interesting, but that wasn't what moved me about it. What grabbed me was I thought, wait a minute, this is a story about a woman who spent 18 years of her life on an act of faith in a man who easily could have been guilty of a murder, easily. She might have been wrong. What if she was wrong? What if she spent 18 years of her life, sacrificed all that she went to, you know, finished high school, went to college, went to law school, became an attorney, what if he was guilty? What if his DNA test came back negative? What if she'd never been able to get him out? What if she'd failed? Would that have made her struggle in vain? Would that have invalidated all those years of struggle and, and work? 
And I felt very strongly the answer was no, that the expression of faith in another human being, the act of love in a brother from a sister was so profound to me that I, uh, it moved me to tears. And I thought, oh, I want to know more about that. I want to tell a story about that. Um, so that really was the thing that, that um, affected me. You know? and, and, and I find that audiences that see the movie say that. You know, so many people come out and they go, the first thing I did was called my brother or my sister. Or yeah. it, it's a very emotional experience in the same way that it does shine a light also on the fact that there are thousands and thousands of people in our prison system today who are sitting there in a five by nine cell for years upon years for crimes that they did not commit. And the flip side of that is there are many people walking the streets who have committed crimes for which other people are serving the time. And uh, the extraordinary work of the Innocence Project is, is, has they've been making huge strides, particularly in recent years, with um, you know, bringing this to light. So to be able to make a film that really shines a light on it also is, you know, is obviously very important. But that wasn't yeah. the, the thing that initially grabbed me. If you have questions, we have time for some questions. Just raise your hand. We'll bring a mic microphone over to you. See this run right in the middle here. So. Hi, Tony. Hi. Uh, you talked a little bit about honesty, and that's something I always strive for. My work as an independent filmmaker, too, uh, as difficult and trying as can be at times. Um, you also talked about really, you know, um, being true to the real-life character um, as far as dialects are concerned and uh, as far as the story. I guess my question is, I mean, where's the line between satisfying the real-life people and the audience? Because you want to you create some tension and conflict uh, for the moviegoers. And what discretion uh, do you have with that? That's a great question. Um, <coughs> you know, the, the way we approached this was <coughs> I spent days, you know, hours and hours and hours talking to Betty Ann and meeting her family and going to all the real places and, you know, absorbing the true story. <laughs> which encompassed 40 years, really, of, these, these, of her life. And then Pamela, my you know, screenwriter and I, sat down and said, okay, now we've got to make a movie. And you have to pretty much forget the obligation to tell a true story. Because I'm, you know, we have to know that this works as a piece of dramatic writing, as a piece of dramatic storytelling. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, it has to stand on its own as a, as a piece of drama. So that was kind of the, the task we set for ourselves. And uh, we had to go, does this work? And we felt that it did. So when we outlined the, you know, the movie and the story, and when Pam went away and wrote you know, 25 drafts of the script, or many, probably many more than that, um, it was always held under that kind of a lens. And then what I would do is, every time we were making choices, I also had like another part of my brain which was had to say to myself, am I honoring the truth of this story? Um, you know, because obviously we, you know, we, we're, we are not making a documentary, and I had to take certain liberties, even when I wanted to be as accurate as I could be, of compressing time, sometimes reordering events, sometimes conflating things that, you know, maybe happened over five separate events, kind of making them all into one, uh, making some stuff up completely that did not happen. Uh, I, you know, once I felt that it worked as a, uh, dramatically, then I would go and go look at it through the lens of the true story of Betty Ann Waters and her family. And I also had to, you know, there was an acid test there. Am I being honest? Am I telling the truth? If not literally the truth of exactly what happened, am I, telling, am I being truthful and honest of the spirit and the feelings of it? Uh, and, and am I honoring, you know, my very deep personal responsibility 
to Betty Ann, who has entrusted me with her story. So there was this kind of very interesting dual line that I walked. But my primary responsibility, as you say, as a filmmaker, is to make a good movie that people are going to be affected by and, and, and be entertained by and want to see. Uh, otherwise, truly, it, it, you know, it should have been a documentary. Um, so that was, it was, um, yeah, it was like switching hats. I think it's worth saying it's a very fluid piece of filmmaking. You move um, between three different time periods, you know, weaving in and out. It's a great piece of editing. For one yeah, structurally, you know, that was also an interesting challenge. We, uh, in order to avoid what I said initially about the sort of TV movie version where it's very linear and, you know, we have a sort of an unconventional structure in the way we deal with time because, as I just mentioned, it's over 40 years. So we sort of picked three key time periods in the story and we interweave them uh, in a way that is kind of hopefully um, compelling and, and, and um, uh, you know, it certainly works uh, emotionally but, but is not your, you know, necessarily the expected way to tell a story like this. But anyway, next question. Yes? I've got a question over here oh, on right. your right. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, um, so uh, in the scene we just we just saw, um, this is kind of a this is more a technical question, but uh, uh, I noticed there was uh, the camera shakes a little bit. I'm assuming you use an air cam. Uh, what is that a conscious decision to have it um, a film like this? Uh, you know, which is uh, you know a, a, a drama. Um, have that 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 visual aspect, or is that just something that's that's typically done? Uh, in this era, or is that you know something that you thought of? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. Um, actually, almost the entire movie is handheld. It wasn't a, a steady camera. It was. It was. Um, I wanted the film um, to feel very subjective, very much like I didn't. You know, there's not a lot of fancy camera work in it at all. Um, w I wanted the f the audience to feel that they're just being sucked into Betty Ann's life experience. That you feel that you're in the scenes with them. And the thing about the hand, what I wanted, the reason I wanted it to be almost all handheld, but in a very steady way, like you see in that scene, it, the camera's just, there's just some fluidity to it. It's not shaky handheld. It's not like, you know, um, you know some TV shows where there's handheld camera and it's moving all over the place to create energy, um, or, you know, which has its place, but not in this film. Um, uh, so I wanted that sense of volatility, because there's a lot of scenes in this movie which are just people talking. It's a you know it's a drama it's a character drama. There's scenes uh, you'll you'll see if you see the movie you know when you see the movie in the visiting room between Sam and Hillary like the one that we showed you first, where really it's two people and you're just gripped by the characters and the story. But I wanted a sense of discomfort and for 18 years Betty Ann's life was very uncertain, and it was fraught with jeopardy, even though she was just living her life. So I thought that having a handheld camera would give that kind of like it's never, nothing's ever steady or locked off or, you know, certain. You did, you always, there's a slight sort of discomfort to it. So that's why I chose that. And when I chose my cinematographer, Adriano Goldman, it was really, you know, I'd seen several of his movies, but when I saw Sin Nombre, I don't know if, you're, if any of you saw Sin Nombre, that, I thought the handheld work in that was so brilliant. And, and he was able to create beautiful composition on the fly with a handheld camera. Um, and he'd like land on some shot and I go, oh my God, how did he find that? So he just has a beautiful eye for within a simple approach, finding a beautiful shot. Um, so, so it was ex extremely uh, conscious, what you described. There's another question in the middle. Hi. Hey. Um, 
So I'm a composer, um, and I was noticing in the scenes that we saw, I you know didn't really hear any sort of music, which obviously they're very dramatic, very personal scenes, and you don't want to distract. But uh, I was wondering throughout the movie, do you use any sort of, uh, is there music, or is it mostly just kind of kept pretty much quiet and just dialogue? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I mean, yes, there's a beautiful score on this film by Paul Cantillon. I don't know if you know Paul's work. He did a Diving Bell on the Butterfly and um, W and a lot of other, he's a, he, and he's a classical composer and just a brilliant, uh, I wanted to keep the music very simple and very elegant in the film. So it's a piano-based score. It's mainly Paul performing, he's playing his own piano and a small string orchestra <laughs> um, with cellos and two violins, I think, and um, uh, some harp, but not much. And then, um, but it mainly is the voice is a piano. And, uh, you know, I found we used to have a lot more music in the film. And as I got towards our final version of it, uh, we did a, a, a screening for some friends um, about six months ago, I think it was. Uh, what was that period? In February or in March, or, you know, where we wanted to make sure, like, is this movie everything we want it to be? And we felt we had a little time because it wasn't coming out till now. And so we screened it for about 25 smart people, filmmakers like that. And the note I kept getting was that I wasn't trusting the movie enough. I wasn't trusting the performances that the movie was very, very emotional, but I was underlining the emotion of the movie in certain moments, particularly with my use of music. So, in a couple of small editing things, but mainly it was music. I had too much music in the film, and there was a moment where I was insecure that it wasn't gonna, the audience wasn't gonna get what a big emotional moment this was, so I'd had Paul write a very emotive cue. And, you know, these, people who I'm very indebted to said, you know, you actually take away from the emotion when you do that. You're telling me what to feel. And so we went through really um, with my music editor first and I just stripped away a lot of the music or what I would do was take a cue that maybe had a lot going on and take out certain instruments, you know, eliminate a whole string line, just let the piano, you know, simplifying things, taking out voices of if I had a harp or rebalancing it, you know, if there was something that was too too emotional, uh, you know, pulling back. So it ended up being, as you see, very much, a lot of the movies very much like The Spare, and yet when the music is there, um, you know, in, in its latest incarnation, I have more people than ever who see the film say, my God, the music is just incredible. It's so powerful. And it's, it's really an, a lesson in the simplicity of music, of where you put it where it really needs it and where it really does a job. We have time for two more questions right here in the front. Hi. Hi. Now, a lot of those questions were technical, and mine's more of a people question. But before I go into it, I have to tell you, I loved you in Promises, Promises. Oh, thank I just, you so much. just thank moved you. here, and it was the only show I've seen so far. Oh, good. Thanks. My question <laughs> is, with Betty Ann and Kenny, did you, like, did they see anything all along, or did you just screen it for them at the end, and what was their reaction to it? Okay, well, well the, there's some bad news first. The, tragically, Kenny died. Um, six months after he was released from prison, he had the best six months of his life, and he, he was a free man and reconnecting with his family and his daughter, who, from whom he'd become estranged because she thought her dad was a murderer. Um, he had a freak accident and fell on his head. And Kenny, he was a guy who burned too bright. You know, he was like an overgrown kid, and he got himself in a dumb situation and fell and, and died. So that was terribly tragic. Right when I met Betty Ann, Kenny had just died. So I have actually never met him, but I feel that I know him very well. Um, 
So that said, um, the way it worked was I, uh, we spent a, I spent a tremendous amount of time with Betty Ann before we wrote the script. And then we really went away and did not involve her. Periodically, we'd call her for some research, some legal papers, a question about this or that. But I would just check in with her and let her know what was going on. And this was a very long process, getting this movie to the screen. It was nine years, or eight years before the cameras. And it was on again, off again. The we had the money, it fell apart, et cetera, et cetera, as these things go. When we knew we had the movie going, I said, Betty Ann, you have to read the script. Because kept, I kept sending her drafts, and she would never read them. And finally, when she knew the movie was set and the money was there, she read the script. And it, you know, she was in bed for three days after reading it. It was just so emotional for her to even read a screenplay of it. And then she was very involved in the shooting. Um, you know, Hillary and Sam and I went up to Rhode Island, where she lives, and they spent two days with her, getting to know her, and it was very helpful for them, and bonding with the family. And then she was on set a lot, and was incredibly helpful to everybody and all of us on set, because she's a very bright woman and understood the process, and it was very helpful to have her involved. And then I went away and cut the film, and she, again, didn't, didn't see anything. Um, and I, when we finished it, and not until June, I guess, when I locked the film and it was all done, I had Betty Ann and her best friend Abra, who Minnie plays, come to New York and um, uh, took them into a screening room and just the three of us watched it together. And uh, she pretty much cried from the very beginning to the end, both of them. It was a very emotional experience and a very powerful one for me, you know. And she couldn't really take it in as a movie. It was just seeing her life up there on screen and seeing her brother uh, so brilliantly embodied by Sam and, and herself by Hillary. And uh, it was just very overwhelming for her. She, she felt that it was very honest and real, and she was very happy about that. But she couldn't tell it as a movie, so then she had to see it twice more um, before she could start to kind of take it in as what it was uh, as a movie. So, yeah. We have our last question right back here. Hi. Um, so I know that you've been both an actor and a director, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, that transition and what might be more rewarding about one or the other or both? Sure, that's a great question. Um, well, I initially started out not wanting to direct at all. I never thought I had the ability or des I really didn't want to do it. Um, I just wanted to be an actor. So I, I was an actor for 10 years before I ever considered anything else. <laughs> and I worked in the theater and movies and television and everything. And, um, but in my early 30s, I kind of started to feel limited, um, that I had more I wanted, to, more involvement I wanted in the filmmaking process. And uh, I thought, you know, 10 years from now, I want to do more than just be an actor. So I thought that meant producing. In other words, that I could find a piece of material that I loved and that had a part for me in it, and I could be engaged from the beginning to the end and not just do my part and leave. Um, and I found a script that I fell in love with but didn't really feel right to act in. And it needed a lot of work, and so, but I wanted to meet the writer. I thought she was brilliant. So I had coffee with this woman, Pamela Gray, who actually wrote Conviction. Um, and it was a script that she had written. Uh, at that time, it was called The Blouse Man. And it was, uh, she wrote it as her thesis project at UCLA Film School. And I told her what I would have done with the script. And she said, well, would you produce it with me? Because I love your ideas, and I'd like to work with it. So we spent two years working on the script, thinking I was going to get another director. And maybe I'd play a part, but I didn't know. I just wanted to see the movie get made and I'd produce it. And then the script got really good. And I kept meeting with directors and felt like they were going to screw it up. Because it was a kind of tricky piece of material that I think could easily have been done very poorly. 
and in a cliched kind of way. It was set in 1969, and that period has always done so badly. And, I, and so I just, out of protectiveness, I said, I, one morning I literally said, oh, I have to do this myself. I can't give this to anybody else. And, um, and it felt like a personal challenge, and I was scared and thought she would yell at me. And I said, Pam, sit down. I think I want to direct this myself. And she thought that was a great idea. And then by a miracle, the money came together. I got a phone call from an agent at CAA where I'm represented who said, that script, the blouse man, you want it, you, that's your script, isn't it? I said, yeah. And he said, you want to direct it too, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, Dustin Hoffman wants to read it. I, Excuse me? And I hadn't shown the script to anybody. And he said, yeah, Dustin is looking to produce small movies and he's heard about it. Someone told him about it and he wants to read it. So I printed out a copy of the script. I didn't have a draft of it and sent it to them. And his company said, please don't show this to anybody else. We want to make a deal on this movie. And um, they let me direct it. And, and they, um, I had this first meeting with one of Dustin's partners. And he, I went to his apartment. And, and he's this wonderful uh, uh, older man named Murray Shizgal, a sort of famous New York character. And Murray was a, a very successful playwright in the 60s. And he wrote Tootsie for Dustin. And they're best friends. And, he had me in his living room and he says, so, you want to do this movie? He said, you want to direct it, huh? And I said, yes, sir. He said, yeah, you fucking well should direct it. That, I love that. Dusty loves actor-directors. I said, okay. How much money do you think you need to make this movie? And I'd been trying to get the budget under $2 million desperately, ineffectively. But I said, well, so I was about to say, you know, $2 million. Do you think you could do it for $6 million? <laughs> I said, yeah, I think probably we could do that. And um, six months later, we were making the movie. Uh, so I was... It, was, it had been four years in the making, but suddenly overnight we were in business. So that, that's how I got into it, and that turned out to be um, a revelation because I realized what I thought would just be a sort of personal challenge turned out to be something I fell in love with. Well, you have a knack for directing. This is a great movie and a great emotional experience. So congratulations and good luck with it, and uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Your questions were just so smart. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Guys, thank you one more time for Tony Goldwyn. The film is Conviction. It's coming out uh, December 1st, I believe. No, no, sorry. Friday, this Friday, this Friday. It's coming out this Friday. IMDb. Mm. Yeah, we got to write them. So this Friday, guys, Conviction will be out. Uh, thank you again to Tony. And don't forget the free Apple-produced podcast, Meet the Filmmaker. That's available as well. And, of course, as always, apple.com forward slash Soho for all your event needs. Thank you again to Tony. And thank you guys for coming out. You have a wonderful time. This Friday, Conviction. Take care now.